You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. This episode of the Sportsman's Nation is brought to you by Outdoor Edge and their complete lineup of replaceable and fixed blade knives and game processing kits. Now, in my bag this year, I had the Razor Pro Saw Combo Kit. It comes in a very compact, handy carrying case, and one handle has the replaceable blade knife and the gutting blade. The other handle has the saw that comes with it. So, I used the saw to split the pelvis and I used the gut hook to open up the cavity and the blade to start cutting all the stuff out, right? So uh, it makes cleaning a deer very simple, very easy, and the the knife is sharp. And uh, if you've ever had to gut a deer with a dull knife, we all know how much that sucks. So um, take a look at the Razor Pro Saw Combo Kit and uh, head on over to OutdoorEdge.com and enter the discount code NATION30. That's NATION30 for 30% savings on your purchase. So I was recently put in Facebook jail for writing a comment about wanting to, quote, kill a frick ton of does this fall. It's no secret that big tech companies have been slowly encroaching on our outdoor lifestyle, and that's why I'm thankful for companies like Go Wild. Go Wild is like any other social media app, except that it's geared towards outdoors men and women. You're able to share your stories and pictures from the field, log your trophies, and engage with other hunters, all without fear of being censored by Big Brother. We recently teamed up with Go Wild to create an easy place where you can see and even purchase all of the gear that you see me use on the Southern Ground Hunting Channel. All you have to do is go download the app to your smartphone and search Parker McDonald to see my gear page. You can also find other gear for purchase in the store from brands like Garmin, Vortex Optics, Rocky Boots, and thousands more. Now here's the best part. If you use the code Southern Ground, all lowercase, all one word, you can save 10% on anything in the Go Wild store. Again, that's Southern Ground, all lowercase, all one word, and that'll save you 10%. I think that's pretty cool. So check out the show notes of this episode for the download link joined hundreds of thousands of other hunters like us on Go Wild. The Southern Ground Hunting Podcast is brought to you by Spartan Forge. It's forged in combat and tailored for hunters. Spartan Forge stands at the nexus of machine learning and whitetail deer hunting to deliver truly intuitive and science-based products that save the hunter time spent scouting, planning and executing their hunts you can start your free 14-day trial today by visiting spartanforge.ai and you can use the code southern ground that's all lowercase all one word southern ground at checkout and that'll get you 25 percent off of your purchase 
You're wanting to know more about saddle hunting? Well, check out tetherednation.com for all your saddle hunting needs. Tethered is for saddle hunters, by saddle hunters, and they're redefining ultralight hunting. If you'd like to support the Southern Ground Hunting Podcast, you can visit patreon.com forward slash southern ground hunting, or you can click on the link in the show notes of this podcast episode. We offer two different tiers for our patrons that offer a solid list of benefits. We'd love for you to join the Southern Ground Hunting community today. Again, that's patreon.com forward slash southern ground hunting. And now, let's get to the show. All right, this is a very exciting episode this week. Yes, I'm, it is. I'm excited about this one. Um, there's there's actually multiple reasons for my excitement, Drew. Uh, number one, uh, and, and in no particular order. No I particular order. Uh, but deer season starts this weekend. It does. It starts this Friday for us. Right. I mean, it's here. We are... Maybe not as ready as we'd like to be. But, I, I'm, I'm not ready. <laughs> but I mean, you can look around this this room right now where all my gears at, and it's uh, kind of in disarray. And I've already been on a hunting trip this week right. this year, so like, right. I need to get a, I need to get my crap in order. But Drew, when I think about um, early season and the time of the season that we're we're about to get into, really, mm-hmm. and a lot of states already are. Right. Uh, the the first thing that I think about when it comes to tactics are acorns or right. as our brothers in the uh, in the north might call them acorns acorns yeah um which is probably the correct way of saying it um but that, that's what i think about that's what i'm focusing my entire right uh early season around and if i'm not hunting right where the acorns are at i'm hunting where a buck might be traveling, traveling to, to, yeah. to find right. from his bedding area and most of the time during the early season those two things are right are close together right so as we're sitting here talking about it, um, I don't know, a couple of weeks ago, we kind of said, you know what, we just need to do a, an episode all about this. Mm-hmm. And we really couldn't think of anybody better than our guest today. Nobody better. And uh, that's Mr. Warren Wilmick. Mr. Wilmick, thank you so much for coming on the show today. How's it going over there in Louisiana? Doing pretty good. I appreciate the opportunity to talk with you all about something I really like to do a lot. Well, I, I, I'm going to go ahead and go out on a limb and say that we enjoy talking to you more, more and our listeners enjoy listening to you more more um than maybe anybody else that we have on the show it's very very true um i get requests people all the time as a podcast host mr womack it you try not to use the same guest over and over and over again um and have as few repeat guests as possible because you want to constantly be pulling out the newest people or whatever you know you always want to talk to to different people but man, I'm telling you, there is nobody else who rec- there's nobody else that comes more requested than you. People are always saying we need to get you back on the show, and so thank you again so much for coming on. I know this is a great treat for everybody listening, and it's a it's a great treat for yes, us. Yes, it is. So, for anybody who doesn't know who you are, can you tell us a little bit about uh, yourself, about your life, and growing up hunting, and and even talk a little bit about. Uh, the journal that you use, and maybe some of the the tactics and things that you have used in the past. Sure, I'll try. Uh, first of all, my name is Warren Womack, and I, I was born and raised in Louisiana. Lived here all my life, with a few exceptions when I was on the road working uh, as an electrician, a union electrician in different locals and different states. But uh, I married my high school sweetheart while I was in the Navy right out of high school, and uh, we had three kids. 
two sons and a daughter, and, and uh, they've since married and had kids, and some of their kids have married and with kids too. So <laughs> my family's really grown a lot from our from our union together, and love every one of them. But hunting has been a really important part of my life. I started off as a small game hunter, hunting squirrels and rabbits and, and a small game like that. And I, they didn't have any deer in the area until I was grown. I, I didn't really start deer hunting until I was 24, just because uh, just no deer. I'd have to travel to hunt deer, and, and I just didn't take advantage of it. It was 24 before I started taking advantage of it. But I had a I had an uncle and a co-worker that, uh, I'm sorry, my phone, I got, I got a message come in. And I got a cricket that alerts me to it. It kind of broke my concentration. But anyway, I got an uncle and a co-worker. They saw that I was getting real interested in it. And my uncle, he was a lifetime hunter, you know. And uh, he, he always kept records and wrote stuff down and numbers and stuff like that. And him and my co-worker, who would go to Texas deer hunting and bring back pictures, showed me and tell me stories and everything got me kind of pumped up and they both uh encouraged me to, to write stuff down keep records and do, they didn't call it a journal but it told me to take a lot of pictures and and just write numbers down and and i i took their word for it and i i got started and it wasn't as serious the first eight years as i became after the after the eighth year i started realizing that i was only challenged by my uh uh, my uh, uh, went blank on it. Only challenged by my my imagination, what I could come up with to record, and and my recordings are all not just writings, but it's writings and pictures and videos since 1991, and uh, and then uh, and I write stories for every deer I killed. I keep up with the kills. I got. I number them, you know, I, I've killed too many to have a name for each one of them, so I just, they number <laughs> one, 387, oh, and I, uh, when I write stuff, I write all my boat hunting stuff in red ink and my gun in black ink and primitive weapons like muzzleloaders and modern day uh, old, old-timey guns that they let you shoot now. Instead of a muzzleloader, I do that with a, a blue ink so I can I can recognize a bow kill or or muzzleloader kill or gun kill real easy just by the color of the writings and stuff. And uh, I, can, I can go on and on <laughs> with this stuff, but uh, I, I had all everything handwritten with my stats and stuff like that, and I got a computer in 2001 and started transferring all my stuff over to a computer, uh, documentations, and it took me about 12, 14 years to get what I have now and what I really wanted to do. So I, not only have it in writings, handwritten stuff, but I got it in, in computer documents too. So, And hmm. like I say, you own it by your imagination once you keep up. And through questions people have asked me, I find different categories of of uh, stats to keep up with. Somebody asked me about this, and I said, well, you know, I don't know, but I got enough stuff down, written down and, and recorded that I can go back and total it all up and I can come up with an answer, and that gives me another category to keep, to keep up with from uh, season to season. Hmm. So let me ask you, can I ask you something about this journal? Um, when you first started to write in it, were you writing in it with the intention of just preserving the memories and to have something to show your grandkids and, and great-grandkids one day? Or were you writing it with the intention of learning more about the deer that you were hunting? 
Actually, it was just just so I could remember it. You know, you kill a few deer, you pretty much remember another thing. But after 54 years of killing deer, you get a a bunch of them down if you if you everything works out for you. But you forget them. But I got a picture of probably every deer I killed except maybe four, hmm. maybe five, four or five deer that I don't have pictures of for one reason or another. And uh, I can I can. And I got the dates, the times, how far the shot was, how far the travel was, where I was hunting at, uh, what what the animal was, and this, that, and other. I got all that wrote down. So I can, I can, somebody can give me a number, or ask me a number, or a date, or something like that, and I I can go look at that picture, and then take that picture and find the story I wrote about it, and then within two or three minutes, I got all the information about that deer, and I start looking at that and reading it. And maybe watching video of it since '91, it puts me right back there like I was there yesterday. Hmm. I can remember everything about it, reading the story, looking at the video of it, and seeing the picture. But if you, if I had done that, I would just say, "Well, I killed a bunch of deer, you know, I don't know anything about them or nothing like that." And it takes a lot of the, a lot of the fun out of it. I mean, I, it's kind of honors a deer too, you know. I value the deer's life a whole lot, and I really respect them a lot. And if you take your life, you ought to be able to at least remember them. And, and the pictures and video and writings help you do that. That's interesting to hear. It's an interesting perspective, and I don't disagree with it at all. If no, you're, it's awesome. If you're going to take something's life, you need to remember it. That's a that that's that's honorable. And speaking of honor, Drew just pulled up something on Facebook yeah, uh, that we saw uh, the other day. That was Mr. Warren, cool. uh, if you don't mind, and I. I know you're a very humble guy and you don't like talking about yourself, but uh, the Louisiana State Chapter Legends of the Outdoors, um, they are inducting you into their Hall of Fame. Is that correct? Yeah, how about that? That's crazy. Huh? Yeah. Could you could you <laughs> just share thought? like a little bit about that and like what it is? And, and, and I mean, that's, that's an incredible honor. Well, it's, it's actually a national organization I wasn't aware of until I found out about this. And <laughs> Louisiana is a state chapter of that organization is the uh legend of the outdoors hall of fame what, what it actually is oh and, wow and, uh, so this is uh and, and uh, you know I, I had no idea what this was all about and i'm real honored by it and i'm, I'm kind of overwhelmed by it never expected anything like this but uh I, I got a guy in louisiana that was this would be the second induction they had the first induction two years ago and they didn't have one last year because of COVID, and right. this is going to be the year. Well, last year they took a hunter in by the name of Dan DeWitt. He's from it's kind of central Louisiana. He's a real accomplished hunter. He's been been a lot of places, done a lot of things, and what I can tell, very deserving. I really didn't know the man before this all happened, but I've, I've went to his site, his uh, Facebook page and all that, and I've got familiarized myself with him. But anyway, they took him in two years ago. And uh, as a member, he gets to nominate somebody for for the upcoming. And he went he went to uh, Leon Stilley, who's on Facebook, pretty good. You, I know a lot of people probably know him. And I've never met Leon, never shook his hand, but I've talked to him several times and messaged with him before. And uh, he told Dan DeWitt that he would recommend me. And evidently, Dan did some research on me or whatever, and he nominated me for this award. And then. Uh, Peyton McKinney, who's over the Louisiana chapter, he uh, he decided to induct me. So I'm going to be one of six that's going to be inducted on 
February the 16th. I'm, that, not, I'm sorry, I always say February. October the 16th. That's I'm awesome. That little place. Man, really cool. man, that's so cool. That's so cool. So, so, Mr. Warren, um, uh, deer season's getting ready to open up for you guys over there in Louisiana. Is is it this weekend? Yes, it is. Open Saturday morning. Open Saturday morning. Okay. Um, we've had we've had two areas in the state uh, that opened on. I think it was the fifteenth of September. They've been open for two weeks. You know. And uh, I, I hunted those areas a couple of times years ago, but it's so hot that time of the year, and just have to drive. Get you know, it's a pretty good drive for me and everything, and I never did any good. It was so early, and so I just quit doing it. So basically, my season starts in, in uh, on the, on the first October. That's uh, that's that's when we start. I right. think it's uh, it's interesting, you know, during that time of the year. I know, we, we've talked through summer, really, mm-hmm. about yeah. different scouting strategies and things like that. We talked about early season, uh, I mean, I'm sorry, off-season preparations. We talked about trail cameras. But I noticed, uh, uh, most hunters probably, if you spend any time in the woods, you noticed the shift. There's a shift of when bucks are in bachelor groups in the summertime, in the hot months, and then as soon as these trees start dropping acorns, everything just changes. It, there's just such a huge change. So I don't put a whole lot into summer scouting as much as I mm-hmm. used to because once those acorns start to drop, I really start finding all the sign next to you know the hot feed tree, right. uh, which is kind of what we're going to be talking about today, which, uh, Mr. Wilmick, correct me if I'm wrong, when you're hunting this way in this style where you're trying to find the hot feed trees, most of your hunts are like scout hunts, correct? Like you're going in early trying to find that tree and then setting up over that. There's not really a whole lot of like preseason. There's not really any way of knowing that the deer are going to be on that hot feed tree unless they're on it currently. Is that right? That's right. My preseason scouting during the summer months, was always for potential areas. I wasn't looking for deer sign as much as I was looking for potential for deer to use the areas that I was checking. Hmm. And I would study topo maps. I call them topo. A lot of people call them topo or whatever. But I would study the topo maps and uh, during the week. And then on the weekends during the summer, I would go to those areas and walk in and, and put eyes, boots on the ground and eyes on, on the ground and, and see what the potential was. And uh, some of the areas you could see a uh, sign that is just just there from year after year after year. You know, crossings where they're coming up the banks and everything dug in, and just historical sign. And you can see old old rubs too, and sometimes old scrapes and everything. But I was looking mostly for the oak trees and the thickness of the areas and stuff like that. But it was that was all just. And then I did a lot of that during turkey season too, in the in the spring. A lot of my turkey hunting was in new areas that I had potential and opportunity to deer hunt, you know, coming up later. And I was just looking for potential. But once the season opens, it's all, it's all to me, it was all about daily in-season scouting. I hunted real big areas. I was hunting home with, uh, national forests. I was hunting uh, wildlife management areas, national wildlife refuges, and uh, just huge areas, you know, and that you could cover a lot of ground during the day and wouldn't, wouldn't bust a deer and run them off and everything. And I would actually walk two to four hours every day looking for feed trees. 
I, I might want to, and I always made multiple day hunts. I like make three day hunts or four day hunts. So I was putting my time in, and, and my, my usual day on my first day, I would hit the woods about with daylight, and I'd walk for about two to four hours looking for something to hunt. And during that walk, in two or four hours, you'd cover a whole lot of ground, look at a lot of different trees, and I might find two or three different places that I thought had the potential of putting deer under me. And then for that evening, I would hunt the one I thought was best considering the wind direction, where I thought the deer might be coming from, and, and, the, and the sign if it was a, some places you just tell they're a morning hunt more like it than an evening hunt, and sometimes middle of the day hunt. It looked better for middle of the day hunt, so I considered all that. Well, I hunted one. Well, I'd hunt, I'd hunt one, that one that evening, and the next morning I would hunt one that I thought was best for the morning hunt for about two hours. Then I would get down, and I would walk another two, four hours in another area looking for something, something else, just putting a lot of time looking. But by the end of the second day, I probably had places I could hunt for the rest of the three or four days. So then I started hunting more, and sometimes, you know, I don't like to hunt. I like to hunt all day, but I don't like to sit in one place all day. And, and I used to hunt multiple trees. And one day I hunt. It was real normal for me to hunt three different trees in the same day. I was hunting by myself most of the time. Didn't have to worry about meeting up with anybody or anything like that. I had to be at a certain place at a certain time. Or somebody worried about me or whatever. I was strictly a solo hunter for the most part. And I, I could hunt two, three, maybe four days. I actually made five hunts one day, a couple of hours in each tree and getting down and moving. It breaks your day up, but you still get to hunt all day long, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's it's interesting hearing you talk about some of your tactics that you used back then um, and, and, and really see and maybe it's just the maybe it's just the presence of social media or or whatever it might be there's a big influx in that style of hunting now because people are finding a lot of success doing that but i do have to ask you kind of backing up from to your some of your summer scouting stuff where you're where you're trying to find the potential areas right you um you're looking for an area that has old historical sign or uh, really studying what the topography of the area and the terrain is like. Was there anything for you that just stuck out as this is a really good potential area during that time, whether it's during turkey season or, or during the summertime? Was there something that just really stuck out to you that always kind of was a consistent thing? Yes, definitely, and that was creeks and the distance from the road and what they had between the road and the creeks. You know, A lot of times you could find a a creek with a two-year-old cutover, a three-year-old cutover that went a half a mile from the road or more back to this creek or drainage or branch or whatever you want to call it. And the, and the, the, the loggers always had a SMZ line, a straight line cutting it through the curve, leaving all the curves wooded. They'd cut a straight line back to the road, and it left a lot of hardwood trees in the curves of the creek or, or the drainage or the river or whatever. And these these uh, after about three years, it's a really good bedding area for deer, and they can they can lay up in that in that cutover, and during the midday, especially you get an oak tree drop in the middle of the day, they don't have to travel to the tree. They're bedded within less than a hundred yards from it, and the, the deer they don't just bed all day long. They stand up and browse around where they're at in their bedding areas and everything. And case like this, they stand up and they can walk you know less than less than a hundred yards 
most of the time. And they had a feed tree and a little narrow strip of woods in the curve of a creek. And uh, that was a really good midday hunting. That's, I always look for something like that midday. But in, but my main focus was on look, looking at those creeks and the roads that access to them and the distance there. If you find a cutover, I would walk down the edge of the woods on near the cutover, the borderline of the cutover in the woods. It's easy to walk and go all the way to the creek and then walk between the cutover and the creek and the curves, checking it out and looking for those those really good mature feed trees that, that had a historical sign under them. And then, and then, of course, you go back, once the season opens, you go back in there and you hit the ground running and you're checking to see what's ready and what's not ready. And I never cared what kind of tree, oak tree it was. The deer is going to designate the primary tree, you know, for because of the mass, the way it tastes to them. Some mass, all mass isn't equal to them. It's some is better than others, and they know which is the best, and they get on it, and they stay on it until another tree becomes better. So you just you just steady, steady looking. And, and a lot of that scouting during the day, uh, have my equipment on, have my stand. We, we were making... Homemade lock-on stands before you could buy them. Before they manufactured, we were using spurs to climb. We had, that was back in the early 70s. We was doing that, and, and uh, so it was pretty lightweight what we had and was doing. So we just load everything up and walk till you find something that's good. It took your breath away from you. It had a lot of disturbance under the crown of the tree, and just climb and and wait for them. I I think when I hear you say that, like. I think a lot of times I have been deterred, maybe is the right word. Uh, I've decided not to hunt an area or even go to check it out because I know that it's primarily. So so it, what I've always been taught and what I've always been told and learned, I guess, is that you have two different types of oak trees. You got red oak and you got white right, oak, and right. then there's all the different subspecies right. after the, you know, within those those two main categories. And if I know a place has a lot of red oaks, I'm probably not going to go in there early season until late season. Right, yeah, right. until you know because the acidity level is is higher. Have you have you found any consistency? I guess between that way of thought, like typically it's going to be white oaks in the early season and red oaks in the late season, or have you just kind of said, you know what, I'm just going to go based on the sign that's on the ground, and and it has that. Has that shown? Has there been any type of common denominator with the the species of oak? Actually, I've seen the exact reverse. Our red oaks come in before the white oaks do. Really? And then the water oaks. That's 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 probably the most successful. It's not without a doubt the most uh, deer producing shots tree that I've ever hunted is water, just plain old water oaks. And I think it's a couple of reasons. They start dropping hmm. in October, and they'll drop. I've, I've killed on them from. First day of October, all the way through January, first of January, basically. It's hard not to shift to a nut all after after the first of January. But the water oak is the most prolific for deer that I've ever hunted, and it's, they got more water oaks than they got anything else. That's one thing, and they're the first to drop. And then the, the southern red oaks, they they come in right after the water oaks start dropping, and then you you swamp your white oak family, you you hill white oaks, pure white oaks, and you. And your swamp chestnuts, they'll start coming in a little later. But I've, I've been able to find and kill deer on water oaks from 1st October all the way through uh, mid to late January, you know. And these, these these oak trees, they have individual drop times, too. 
And that's another thing about keeping a journal in your records on what you killed and where you killed it at and the story about it. Uh, I found that if a, if a, you find a water oak and it's dropping the second week in October, well, it's going every time it has acorns, it's going to drop the second week in October. And I, I don't know if you know it or not about the characteristics of the white oak family and the red oak family. The red oak family takes two years for to acorn to, to bud out and mature and drop as a food source. It takes two years. But you can have two seasons, two years worth of acorns on at the same time. You can have first-year acorns and second-year acorns at the same time. So you can have a, a red oak tree, even though it takes two years to produce, it will drop acorns consecutive years. Now, a white oak family, they take one year to mature and drop. And so, you know, it's over and over. But I've killed a lot more deer on the red oak family than I have the white oak family. Really? That's, that's interesting. That's super interesting to me. Because just just like you, Parker, I've I've heard my whole life, you know, white oak is the golden acorn, you know, like that's it. Well, corn is the golden acorn. Well, yeah, but, but <laughs> you know, outside of that, you yeah. know. But so yeah. that's that's really interesting, Mr. Warren. Um, also, something else. Something else. I, I, yeah. I'm sorry, up you, but I, I forget. Oh no, it. no. <laughs> uh, a good good hunting friend of mine, probably the best bow hunter I ever hunted with, all around bow hunter I ever hunted with is. Unbelievable. But uh, anyway, he noticed that same trees on the same elevation can have the same drop time. And he noticed that uh, one tree that was really hot, and he checked the elevation on it and got on his map and found the same elevation in another area with a similar uh, situation. Went and checked, and they had the same drop time. Uh, so, you know, I don't know if it's 100%, but it's it's a real good tool to use if, if you kill a deer on a certain elevation. You don't want to go back to that tree. You want to find you another one, find a uh, a different area with the same elevation. It has the same type tree, and you have a good chance of it being hot too during that same time period. Um, we actually had a guest named Nathan Killen that talked about the exact same thing. He did. He did. Uh, He's a mountain hunter from from, from uh, West Virginia, West Virginia, or Virginia. One yeah. of those. One of those Virginia state. Um, yeah, I'm from Nathan. What's that? I said I'm very familiar with Nathan. Yeah, and he talks Traditional about that, that same thing that you were just saying. He'll find he goes out in his scouting uh, and find the elevation that the acorns are dropping that year, and he kind of just assumes that that's the right elevation to be at. That's the elevation that these deer are going to be feeding on, because um, mm-hmm. that's the ones that are producing fruit. So you're in a different, a little bit different area, Mr. Womack. You're in Louisiana, a little bit flatter. Um, are you noticing with with some of the flatter terrain any consistency uh, for your? Obviously, elevation is going to be a little bit of a different thing, right? Where you're at in that flatter land. Yeah, it, it doesn't change that much, but there is a you know. Some elevation changes in it. We got we got ridges that drop off down into sloughs and creek bottoms and drainages and stuff like that. But there, there are, it's it's not like in the mountainous country or real big hill country. But we do have rolling hills that produce drainages and mm-hmm. and creeks drain off with the finger ridges, main ridges, and finger ridges and stuff like that. And then your creeks. Some of your creeks, depending on the size, have great big wide hardwood bottoms and some have just narrow strips where the hills come down and make funnel areas and stuff yeah are you noticing any time when you find a good 
yeah, a good hardwood area that has you know a bunch of different oaks in there, or maybe it's just a bunch of the same oaks. Um, do you find that those areas are consistent year after year? Um, and you just kind of have to go in there and find the right tree that's in that area, but um, but they continue to produce deer uh, just in that. Let, let's say it's like an oak ridge, like a, a, a like an oak. I don't know any other way to describe it. Like a bench that has a bunch of oaks on it. Let's say, and it's just. Do you find those areas that just consistently produce like that? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, you know, they have years. They had one year. Uh, oh, it's been back in the nineties, I guess now. And uh, it was a. Uh, it wasn't any acres at all. I was hunting this big hardwood hilly area with drainage, a lot of drainage and creeks and stuff. And they didn't have any oak trees dropping. None of them had acorns except for the. I call them cows. They got a cow has three different names. If you do a search on, it. it's a cow because a. It's a swamp chestnut or it's a basket oak. It depends on the location yet, what they call them. I've always called them cow oaks. But that year, that was the only year, that was the only acorn that trees that had acorns that year was, was the cow oaks. They didn't have any red oaks. They didn't have any water oaks. They didn't have any white oak acorns. Just that particular cow oak tree. And I knew where a bunch of them were. And that, that year, I made 15 hunts in October. And I... I so I had it. I had, it wasn't a day I hunted. Those fifteen days, I didn't have a deer inside fifteen yards on cow trees, and, and that cow usually don't start dropping until about the maybe the third week of October, uh, something like that. Third to fourth week of October before it start dropping. But the acres were green, and the squirrels. There's only acre in the head. Our squirrels was cutting them green, and the deer were coming in for the droppings, and it was just unbelievable how many deer I saw during that that season just coming to, to that one acre that was available. And they were, the deer were picking up the droppings from squirrels until they started maturing and dropping on their own. But, uh, you know, I I got uh, one of my hunting buddies now, he was real big on, on pre-season scouting with binoculars, looking at oak trees. It's, it's just too many oak trees to check to use a binocular. <laughs> And I just, you know, that's the, that's the hunt I said probably the best. And that's the only thing I really disagreed on, we disagreed on. But he's going staring up at all these oak trees with binoculars and all that. And, it, you know, I, I don't care if they got acorns or not. I just want to see the ground disturbance under a tree to know that the deer has selected that one particular tree to be the primary feed tree for the entire area. And that equals a high percentage hunt. That's the only thing I was worried about. And I would almost... Well, I wouldn't almost. I, when I was younger, I would jog from tree to tree in a big bottom of the thing, looking for that sign on the ground, that ground disturbance. And I see that ground disturbance, and it's, it's, it's not very noticeable. You stand at the drip line of the crown, and you, you straddle that drip line where the actual drip line is, and you look inside the crown of the tree, and the ground is just disked up. It's just they got they got deer droppings all in there. You might look over in a little brand, uh, little sapling to be rubbed on it, something like that. And you look outside that drip line, it's totally undisturbed. Well, once I see that, it stops me in my tracks. And I look at it, and I stand there and listen a little while. And if I stand there a minute and don't hear an acorn, I'm gone. But if I, if I stand there and hear an acorn drop less than a minute, and they drop another one minute or two minutes or something like that, steady, dropping acorns i'm climbing right then and there if i got my stuff i ain't i'm gonna run back to my vehicle and get my stuff and come right back and sit on it 
But those trees are only primary and designated until there ain't another one that's better replaces it. And I mean, it's like turning the light switch on or off. When it's ready, they own it. And then when they find one better, they off of it and they own the other one. So what's good one week might not be good the next week. So you just got to keep looking. And that's where you in-season scout. And that's, that's the best advice I can give anybody. You can't do it on small properties. It's got to be large acreage properties, so you'll run them all off in a small place. But when you got big public land you can hunt, man, you just got to find what they have designated as the primary food source for the entire area. And you find this money. Yeah. Mr. Warren, one of the things that we've seen over interviewing different guests and everything like that is that it's really hard to kill bucks in the early season just due to the heat and it not being the rut and just just different things my my question is is um whenever you get a hot feed tree and you get a break in the weather like the the weather gets cooler have you seen over your history of hunting have you seen the buck activity pick up on those feed trees versus a normal early season hot muggy day well, you know, you get the perfect weather condition. I think all the deer take advantage of it. You know, it's like like we are. You know, it's nasty weather. We don't do nothing. But if you get a pretty bluebird day two days after a front. That's the best time I ever found a hunt was the second day after a front. Hmm. You, you, the winds out of you, comes in out of the northwest and switches over to the north by the second day, and it dies down that second day, and you got bright skies, bluebird skies, and just crisp and everything, they, they, they're going to move a lot better during that time. I've killed a lot of deer on that second day after a front. and just look forward to it. But but uh, I, I got, I'm off of your question now. No, that's 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 exactly what, I mean, because I've always heard, you know, like the, the day before or the day after, you know. And, and so it's it's very interesting to hear somebody, um, you know, has hunted all their life say, I've killed more deer on the second day because um, I would – how how I grew up hunting and um would and probably be like, most people grew up this yeah way. yeah it, it was the day before the cold front or the day after and then I would take my off day on the on those days so it might or be the interesting day, the day of or that's, the day that's of, yeah. how it was always for me it's yeah. like oh man weather's gonna drop ten degrees or twenty degrees we need to go out that day yeah, which is, which isn't a bad move no I mean, it's I not think. but I know for all of us that save all of our uh you know you know quote-unquote sick days and calling days and everything Uh you know for it's just very interesting to hear someone say it's that it's the second day but it does make sense talking about the wind switching and dying down which that i've I've, well i find it the first day is real windy and you got some rain mixed in with it most times and the second day is real windy you know it's just gusts of wind but the the second day after not not when he comes in not the first day after second day after that wind gets down. It's got it's got a good steady wind, but it's not over the wind. You know, it's just perfect for taking your scent away from your hunting spot. Hmm. And and uh, it's a pretty day, just a bluebird day. I'm gonna tell you something else about those bucks too. They don't like to compete with does for acorns either. And them does, you'll you'll run them off uh, when you're going to stand before daylight. A lot of times they'll be on that tree right before daylight, and you'll run them off. But if it's enough deer in the area. They might have some more. They might even come back, or some more might come in. But that buck, he don't like to compete with those does and yearlings for those acorns. And what he does, he kind of waits till about nine thirty or ten o'clock, and then he'll come sneaking in there to get him some acorns. By that time, the the does 
it picked all the acorns up. Well, it's had enough time for some more acorns. If it's a good tree and they drop in like rain, well, it's going to have more acorns on the ground for them to come to. And they see them sliding in there around 9.30 to 10.30, something like that, and pick them up a few acorns. I've, I've had some success with that, too. So, so Mr. Warren, you don't you don't mind bumping deer off the feed tree? That that that's not something that that you worry about going into it. No, no, but, you know, either you're gonna do it or you're not gonna do it. But the tree's still producing, and, and it's where they want to be. So, like I say, you know, it's probably got that wasn't the only deer in the area. Mm-hmm. I always hunted the best places I could hunt where it had the highest uh, deer density I could find. So, you know, I'm. I just like to kill deer. I ain't never been a trophy hunter or anything <laughs> like that. I'm just happy with a deer sighting and a shot, you know. Yeah. And uh, so I wasn't worried about it too much. You know, there's something that I'm I'm constantly having to remind myself too, thinking about what you talked about earlier just through this conversation. So the first thing that you said you're looking for are those spots that have the potential. Right, and you're you're going in for like you said those SMZs. We've talked about it a lot. I did a video about this last year on one of the bucks that I killed in an SMZ strip. They use that bedding in the cutovers because it's so thick, it's impenetrable pretty much. There's no tree that anybody can really get in, and then they they eat those first available oaks on those SMZ strips usually because they can keep all their cover. Mm-hmm. They they pretty they never have to get out in the wide open hardwoods. Right. They keep all their cover. Yeah, they don't have to travel. They just step out of it, and they're right there. Right. And I think when you when you think about hunting bigger, mature bucks versus hunting does, um, this one tactic and one way of hunting can be great for producing both of those things. Mm-hmm. Because deer, in general, don't like to get out of the cover in the daylight. They just, in general, like right. young bucks does fawns big bucks they all like to stay they like that security um but i think when you when you when you think about these type of areas part of the reason why they can be so good is because you really do have opportunity for and that's kind of what i feel like mr womack that you're explaining a lot of those bucks will wait until the does are out of the area to come and slip in there because they still have that security in a lot of those areas. Is that am I reading that? Am I thinking too deep into what you're saying, or is that exactly what you mean? No, that's exactly what I mean. You know, they just they don't like competing for those acorns with those does and everything. You know, a buck, a buck, I always considered a lot easier to kill than a doe. The only thing that made him harder is not as active in the daylight hours as a doe is. You know, mm-hmm. that doe she's raised on and she's got to teach it uh, woodsmanship. Deer woodsmanship, I guess you'd call it. You know how to navigate, what to eat, what not to eat, how to get around from one place to the other, and just it's a learning process and a teaching process for the fawn and the doe. And she's a lot more active in the daylight. That that buck, he's not worried about anybody but himself. He all he's concerned with is food and water and and shelter, and at certain times of the year, the rut. That's it. That's the only thing he's concerned with. So what I've seen them do, I've seen them like they're coming in late one of the oak trees after the does are all gone. They'll stand off, you know, 50, 40, 50, 60 yards from that tree, and they might stand there like a statue for 30 minutes. I've seen them do it for 30 minutes, not move a muscle, not flick an ear or a tail or nothing, just stand there. And then when they when they 
convince herself that everything is cool, they'll flip their tail one time and they walk straight to that tree, just like you got on, on a string. They don't look to the left, they don't look to the right, they don't convince herself it's safe. They come right in there and it's an easy shot, basically. But a doe, when she comes in, most of the time she's looking for boogers to jump out at her from behind <laughs> every tree. She <laughs> just has so many different uh, uh, events with people and, and predators and stuff like that. She's always worried, concerned something's going to get her. That buck, he ain't worried about nothing once he feels he's safe. I have noticed that with with bigger bucks that I've shot, especially with a bow, uh, it seems to me that my further shots that I take are usually at does, and my closer shots that I take are usually at bucks because a buck, a lot of times, he'll just commit to it. Mm-hmm. Like, um, he'll just, I can think of so many bucks that I've shot with my bow that just were like, well, they weren't given, they weren't given a care in the world right. to what was going on right. around them. Once they committed to it, they were committed to it. Um, so I, I, I think it's easy for people to maybe mishear what you're talking about. I think uh, what you started out with, with the type of areas that you're hunting, the thicker, you, you want to find those thick areas like a cutover. You want to find those hot feed trees around those thicker areas. Um, you're not just, while I know you said you're not, you don't consider yourself to be a trophy hunter, this is a very good way in the early season and perhaps one of the, the best ways to kill a, a big mature buck in the early season. But it might be the to, only way to kill them during early season. Well, it, it, I'm going to argue a little bit with that because I think that a lot of people, you, you talk about a, a in fall, Andre DeQuisto, a lot of those guys who really teach getting in a buck's core area mm-hmm. and getting in, you know, Dan Infault's his whole thing is Betting. hunting over a buck bed. Right. I think that's an effective way to shoot big mature bucks if you know but it's just not a very high odds but, game but also with that he's bedded there for a reason and normally the food is close this is true yeah i think you always have to use that it, would you agree with that mr Womack? obviously i think you're going to say 100 percent. you agree with it that the food at that time of the season is the most important aspect yeah they, that's one of the few things that they have to do is eat <laughs> But, uh, you know, those, you're talking about those, hunting those bedding in there and everything. You know, everything's a bedding area down here in the south. <laughs> I think up there, they got the little marshy areas and stuff. They got uh, square blocks. I had a guy from Indiana come down and made a hunt with me back uh, in, in 98 or 99, something like that. And, and he was one of the, the uh, most uh, well-known Indiana bow hunters it was. You know, he and... He was well-known, and he's been on magazine covers and everything. I met him while I was working up there in Valley. He'd come down hunting, and uh, he didn't even have a compass. You know, he got lost in a cutover. Had to holler him out. It's a, that's a long, funny story, you know. I ain't going to tell his name or nothing, but it's a long, involved story, what we did. But I had to holler him out of a cutover that he wasn't 100 yards off the road. He just lost in there. And, I, and he didn't, I said, well, you, you didn't check your compass before you went? He said, I don't have a compass. He said, I don't need them up there. We got little woodlots, little blocks of woodlots and stuff. And I, well, we hunt, though, massive, huge, vast areas of hardwood and, and creeks and drainages and stuff like that. Everything looks the same when you get in there. And uh, it's just, it's just, the deer can bed anywhere, especially with all the cutover we got. So I, I've never been concerned with bedding areas. They could be anywhere. When I when I hunt a feed tree, I find it 
I just get the closest tree I can. I try to get it in a tree like 10 yards from the, from the primary feed tree downwind of it That's because a deer can come from anywhere where I'm hunting at most of the time. I don't. Sometimes I know where I expect them to come from. Most of the time I don't. Yeah, yeah. Mr. Womack, do you, do you find that you have more success in either the morning or the afternoon in in early season? Well, I've killed a lot more deer in the evening times than I have in the mornings, but uh, I've killed my better deer in the mornings. Hmm. That's interesting. That's consistent. That is I, cons- think, I think that's consistent with a lot of people. Um, more more deer in the afternoon, a, but better deer. That was a question I was asked uh, a while back, and I I'm, I went through my record and I got a category. Let me let me read it to you. It was asking the the best times I hunted and this that and other. So I, I did a little little deal and I come up with something that's pretty interesting. Are you ready? I got my book out right now. Yes, sir. From now this isn't just this isn't sightings. This is just kills. You know, if if I figure I don't know what the sightings, I'd have to do so much research. It takes forever to figure out the sightings too. But but from six o'clock in the morning to seven o'clock, I kill sixteen deer. From seven o'clock to eight o'clock, I kill forty. From eight o'clock to nine o'clock, I kill twenty-eight. And nine o'clock to ten o'clock, I kill twenty-four. From ten o'clock to eleven o'clock, I kill fourteen. From eleven to twelve noon, I kill four. And from twelve noon to one, I kill five. From 1 o'clock p.m. to 2 o'clock p.m., I kill 4. From 2 o'clock to 3 o'clock, I kill 5. Now you get into the good time. From 3 to 4, I kill 26. From 4 to 5, I kill 58. And from 5 to 6, I kill 94. From 6 to 7, I kill 47. From 7 to 8, I kill 10. So that, that breaks it down how many I killed in each hour of the day. Well, and you think about, so some of those... Uh, like seven to eight, for example, would have to all be uh, early season before the time change because mm-hmm. it starts getting dark. I would imagine it's not too terribly different there. Is that right? I mean, it's dark by six o'clock during once the time changes here. Is that pretty close there too? Uh, once the time changes at night, it gets dark at five thirty for us. Yeah, yeah, it's, that's yeah. what's the same. Yeah. So, yeah, but December, November, December is getting dark at five thirty. But, you know, this is starting from October 1st through January the 31st. Basically, yeah. that's what all these times. And that's a bow and gun, too. That's a combination of all of yeah. them. Yeah. So you've got uh, from, I believe it was 7 to 8 o'clock, and then that, uh, what was it, 5 to 6 o'clock? Those are your two main ones. Main times? Is yeah, right? I killed 40 at 7 to 8 in the morning and 94 between 5 and 6. But you said your better deer the came from the morning. Right, yeah. I, I find that to be really consistent with southern southern hunting. people. Yeah. Now, a lot of people up north, and you watch any amount of hunting videos, YouTube videos, whether it's, you know, Sportsman's Channel, whatever, a lot of those hunts are happening on field edges at night, right at dark, the buck comes out and they shoot it or whatever. Um, not a lot of content from the from the morning hunts. Uh, I would say from as far as the nationwide goes. Now, for me, in the South, most of my, pretty much all except for one of my bigger deer, one of my biggest bucks came from the morning hunt. And funny enough, the biggest one, it's that one right there, that big Georgia deer, that was 
during an evening hunt. My biggest buck ever came from an evening hunt, but more, most of by my, and large, yeah, by and large, most of the mature deer I've killed have been in the morning in the south. Yeah, um, it's just interesting to think about, you know, and, and I think really a lot of it comes from the hunting style that you're doing. If mm-hmm. you're hunting, if you're hunting wide open hardwoods um, in the rut. There's there's really no telling when you're gonna kill it. I mean, those deer could be running. I think about Kentucky. A lot of those big bucks running around. I mean, it's from daylight until dark. You never know when he's gonna come through this wide open hardwood piece that you can see for 300 yards. Mm-hmm. But when you're doing what Mr. Womack is talking about and really getting tied into that cover and finding those first food sources, those first best food sources that still have that security. Man. Which also looking for the most deer density, you mm-hmm. know, um, which, which yeah, I, that's important. I'm it's sorry all about location, it's all about location. You, yeah. you take one of the best hunters in the world and put him in a substandard location and he's not going to do near as good as a rookie will in a real high, high density area. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. It's just, it's just so cool to hear the, how Mr. Warren hunts versus some, some other guests. Neither of them are wrong. It's yeah. just it's just really interesting to see because um, I know we well, you know acre, acre hunting acorns is just a very small part of my hunt. I've right. got a lot of other different. Uh, I've got more hunting areas than I have any. I've killed sixty six with a gun and forty six with a bow hunting just areas and areas are made up of flow areas, funnel areas, uh, just general areas, uh, observation areas, just pinpoint areas you know just a general type area i've killed more like that so uh, i was talking about water oaks a while ago i've killed uh i've killed six with a gun and 53 with a bow on water oaks (laughs) whereas a white oak i've only killed 13 with a bow huh huh so i'm curious to know um you talked about you know that that oaks or acorns are just one. Of, is there any other type of like mast producing tree? I guess that you find to be high up on the list of things that deer like to eat. Yeah, uh, you know persimmons is probably the top of top soft mass. And then you, we don't have many crab apple trees left in the areas I hunt. But Robert Carter and, and Chris Spikes do real well in Georgia on those uh, on those. Uh, Crab apple trees. Now, what I had had a lot of fun hunting and everything was those uh, honey locust beans from a honey locust tree. Mm-hmm. The thorn trees, long black bean, and everything. Oh man, the bucks will walk through acorns to get to those things. It's it's a it's a buck magnet for sure. But I have the, the areas I've been hunting. You know, lately they don't have any. I just hunted a couple of areas that really had them, uh, but I did real good on them, the ones that did have it. If you had to put, like, in rank of, and this might be throwing you a little bit on the spot, so I apologize for it, but if you had to rank the the type of food sources that you like hunting from best to least, would you, do you have a way, do, do you happen to know that off the top of your head? Uh, just by the, the, the ways I've killed deer, I can look at that and, and see which was most productive, you know, the years, how many deer I killed. I got it all wrote down. Uh, trails are, is real inconsistent. I don't like trails because if you get on this one, the deer's going to go on that one. If you get on that one, the deer's going to go on this one. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. inconsistent. And, 
and it's just a luck deal. But I've killed 32 with a bow and mounted gun hunting trails. Uh, I've killed uh, probably the most I've killed is, is the areas which was uh, like say 66 with a gun and 46 with a bow. Now the the water oaks I've killed. Like I think I already said that six with a gun and fifty three with a bow. Red oaks have killed seventeen with a bow. Cow oaks thirteen. I love hunting cow trees. Those swamp chestnuts, they just fun to hunt with those big old acorns hitting the limbs, bouncing off the limbs coming out of the yeah. trees. I found cow trees that that just by, by hearing them like a hundred yards away from the acorns falling, hitting the ground, thudding the ground and bouncing off the branches, falling in creeks and everything. It was so noisy. Found a lot of hot trees with blue jays too, especially the little water oak acorns. They get on them big time. And uh, uh, when you find a hot tree, you know it's, it's just a lot of activity in it. You got coons in it, squirrels in it, cutting and acorns are falling regularly. And boy, it's just it's just a magnet for deer. That's what I was going to ask. Is is when you're going in, and if you find an area that just says that, let's say you see five squirrels in this one little little small area is that kind of a a red flag for you like i need to be i need to have my eyes open right here oh definitely yeah you, you know I, I i go to a blue jay if i hear a blue jay squawking those blue jays make a lot of noise when they up in a tree knocking acorns out and i mean they eat eating the acorns too but they knock a lot of them out on the ground and the deer hear that too and the deer come to those trees too from the blue jays making so much noise feeding on them and, and like i say i've seen coons in the trees uh, I, it just it's just a it's just a hot food source for all kind of animals. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, that's that's something I think that's easy to to mistake or easy to not think about when you're scouting in an area like these. These animals are are all eating right these acorns, and so they're gonna all be on the ones that taste the best, which kind of drives home. We just get so focused. We're hunting deer, so we're like that's mm-hmm. all we concentrate on is the deer. And in fact, sometimes a squirrel or a blue jay or a raccoon could lead us to killing a which, deer. Which I believe is, is just called woodsmanship. That's pretty yeah. much what it is. <laughs> yeah. That's pretty much what it is. Um, so, so, so let's just, let's kind of subcategory this, Mr. Womack, if you, if you don't mind. Let's say you've got, uh, let's say you've got hot, hot feed trees in whatever this, this area that you've got a hot feed tree of all these different types. So you've got a, a hot white oak, a hot red oak, a hot persimmon, and let's just say a hot mm. honey locust, the honey locust pod. Um, if you've got all four of those things that you know are there and you know deer hunting them, which one are you going to choose and why? <laughs> well, the wind would have something to do with it. Being a morning hunt or evening hunt or a midday hunt would have something to do with it. The amount of sign, the rate of the acorn fall, it's, a, it's just, just a lot just of... Just for... All things equal... Just, all things, let's just, let's just for evening hypothetically... Hunt. E- evening hunt, all evening things equal. hunt. Yeah. The wind is perfect for all four of them, okay? You have an equal amount of sign, everything is the same. Do you find that one of those things is... You like to hunt one of those things better, or it makes you feel more confident? It'd be a toss-up between a persimmon and a honey locust, I would guess. Really? Okay, I mean, I, I, and, and the reason I ask is we have maybe a few of the honey locusts out here. I don't see them just a ton, um, but persimmons, we definitely have those. And you hear this argument all the time of 
should I hunt persimmons, a hot persimmon tree, or a hot oak tree? Should I be looking for the oaks? And you hear people have different, you know, right. they go back and forth, argue, like everybody argues on Facebook these days about anything. But the argument that I always hear is the acorn is for, it's fatty, it's building up their their fat, it's actually filling, they know what they need, and the persimmon is more of just like candy to them, you know, that, but deer don't operate the way they do. They don't just eat because it tastes the best. They eat it because it, they need that nutrient. Um, yeah. Kind of explain, explain that, or if you, if you know any of the, any of the data to support, you know, that they would rather have a persimmon over an acorn. Well, the persimmon is kind of the dessert. <laughs> yeah. You know, they, it's like the candy, the ice cream for them, and, and the, 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 the mass, the acorn mass is, is like a, a real bona fide food source. But and the, and the honey locusts, they just they just like those, especially the bucks. They just really like them. So I don't know. They just try to hunt them out. You know, I don't like to hunt a tree more than more than one time anyway. I, I hunt it once, mm-hmm. and I try to find. Yeah. I, I can't say that now. Like I said, I'm hunting different now than I did when I was in my prime, and I wouldn't want to tell anybody to hunt the way I do now. I want to tell them where I was most successful hunting, and that was when I was in my prime. And uh, just, but if you if you got hunt them all, you know, don't spend two two or three days on one tree when you can hunt maybe four trees in two days. You know. Yeah, yeah, Mr. Warren, did you ever have any? success over like muscadimes or wild grapes or berries or anything no but i could have but they all drop out before the season starts and they're right they're not a viable food source once our season starts i found some in september scouting that was just unbelievable the sign is in sandy creek bottoms and stuff drainage i know mm-hmm. a creek bottom drainage that has sand bottom and those muscadines was falling all over the ground and just the banks were tore up where they was getting them and just and then you go back two weeks later, and it's all over with. It's gone. It's dead. Yeah. So I never really had to hunt them, but I've seen where deer would really be on them. And a, a person is blessed if their season's in during those muscadines dropping because they do go to them hard. One last, one last thought, um, and uh, and we'll we'll let you go. We've been talking for an hour, man. I I want to say this too. When we talked to you, and I remember feeling this same exact way when I talked to you before. A year and a half ago, I guess not. Crap, it was two years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it does our our time just feels like we could continue talking for three more hours probably because it's just you're so easy to talk to and you're full of information. Um, but we've talked about these like mass producing trees, soft mast, hard mast, things like that. The honey locust. Is there any type of browse, like um, any type of Mountain laurel or, or yeah, anything you like know, that. Uh, green briar. Are you paying attention to any of the just the brows that they have? Not really, because we have so much of it. Yeah. Now I have walked through brows on the ground, just ground cover, I like to call it, and walked through it and climbed on an oak tree, and I've seen uh, bucks actually walking in where I had walked in my in my tracks, basically eating the brows I had walked through, you know, 30, 40 minutes later after I'd walked through it. But uh, I don't, I don't, I can't say I ever set up, and I don't have any category for killing deer over any kind of brows at hmm. all in my record. Huh. So I, it's just, it's just so prevalent. It's just everywhere, you know. I just never honed in on it. I, 
by the time the season opened, was that I was so concerned with finding a feed tree, lake and feed tree, that I, that's the last thing I want to look at for browse. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I can see that. I mean, when you walk, as soon as you step foot in the in the woods, a lot of times you can tell when stuff's been nipped at or they've they've bitten off, eaten off the tops of greenbriars or whatever, and that gives you an idea, you know, and maybe that would fall under, Mr. Womack, that might fall under your potential category when you find that there's a lot of deer in the area eating off the browse, but not necessarily like, hey, there's so much browse right here, I'm going to set up <laughs> over this. It's, yeah. so, it's so critical, bow hunting. you got to put deer under you, especially with a trad bow. You know, I, I've, I've only hunted with a trad bow since, since the 93 season, so, you know, it's critical. i got to get my deer 15 yards. And, uh, and and hope it's close enough then. But uh, in doing hunt browse, I wouldn't really know how to set up on that because it's everywhere. You know, they just as they travel, they just nip on stuff as they go. I see them in the backyard now. Thing when they they come in, they leave out, and they just as they walk and they just put their head down, picking up little weeds and stuff as they go. So it would be a a, a real low percentage hunt for me to say I was going to hunt browse. That's good to know. I mean, sure. That's yeah. great information. Yeah. yeah, yeah, Mr. Warren. I think it's plenty. Of does do that, and they do real good, you know. But it just never was something for me. Yes, sir. Yeah. Do you find that in really wet years where we had a lot of rainfall, do you do you find that the acorns seem to be better um, versus a, a drier year? And what I mean by that is we've had a lot of rain over in our part of the country this year. Do you do you think rainfall affects the uh the acorns or they're just going to be whatever they're going to be i think it fills them out better and quicker maybe you know it makes them more attractive to the deer uh, but who knows what what makes a deer prefer one acorn over <laughs> another acorn i wouldn't know i'm not a biologist or anything like that i just like to spend time in the woods <laughs> yeah uh, well you know i think it's so good it's so refreshing talking to you like i mentioned before yes mr Wilmick, because uh, you're a lot like a lot of the people listening to this. You know, we're not scientists. We're not, you know, most of us aren't scientists. We don't, you know, have, we're not biologists or whatever. We just like to go out and figure out how to have the highest odds. And uh, and you put that in such simple terms for people to understand, and I really do appreciate that. And not only that, you're just a joy to talk to. So it's yes. uh, it's been a pleasure. This last hour has been a pleasure getting to talk to you on the show. And. And also, too, Mr. Warren, thank you so much for producing some of those uh, diary entries on your yeah. Facebook page. I've been enjoying those. Yeah, they're great. They yeah. fire me up. I'm gonna, after the season's over, I'll probably put some more. I don't feel right putting old stuff on current times now. Everybody's pro- reporting their kills and telling them, showing their kills and stuff like that. And that's, that's history for me that I'm sharing. So I'll wait till all the season's over with and maybe show do the same thing before the turkey season starts with some of my turkey kills, and, and then uh, later around August, September, I start posting some more. I, I enjoy doing it. It gives me a chance to go back and research stuff, and and uh, and I, I relive the hunt as I as I post it on Facebook. It's just a it's just a great memory for me. Well, we do enjoy well, it. Well, yes, thank I you know so much. I know a lot much. of other people do. So uh, again, thank you so much for coming on the show, man. I cannot wait to talk to you again. Thanks for considering me and having me on. I enjoy talking with y'all. It's a lot of fun. Thank you all so much for listening to this week's episode of the Southern Ground Hunting Podcast. As always, a big shout out to all of our partners. That's Go Wild, Spartan Forge, Tethered, 
new canoe, and scree gear. You can keep up with Southern Ground Hunting by following us on Facebook and Instagram, or you can subscribe to us on the YouTube channel. Make sure you check out southerngroundhunting.com to pick up some of our merch, hats, t-shirts, stickers, stuff like that. I truly hope you enjoyed this week's episode, and we'll see you here again next week. Remember this, God gave you dominion over the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, and the beasts of the earth. So go out and exercise that dominion. We'll talk to you next time.